Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today on the show, all things geopolitics with Marco Papich, a partner and chief strategist at Clocktower Group, an alternative investment manager. Marco is the author of Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future, published in October. Before joining Clocktower, Marco started the geopolitical strategy practice at BCA Research. He began his career at Stratfor, a global intelligence agency. Marco believes getting the market right is just as much about politics and geopolitics as it is about valuations, interest rates, and earnings. He wrote the book to empower investors to do the necessary research themselves and engage in better conversations. We talk about the framework he lays out in the book, the U.S. presidential election, political polling, U.S.-China relations, Brexit, the Middle East, and more. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. Marco Papich, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased to have you on the show today, and really congratulations are in order. You're a newly minted author. Your first book, Geopolitical Alpha, just came out, and I imagine it must have been quite a wild ride these past few months. Uh, what was it like to publish a book in the middle of a pandemic? It was definitely challenging. Uh, you know, uh, it's funny. I had a conversation with my partner, Steve Drobny, who himself is an author. He wrote a book. It's really great, Inside the House of Money. And we had a conversation about writing a book. And he, he, he asked me, well, how quickly would you be able to write your book in? And I said, oh, about three months. Um, and, uh, and then I looked at him. I said, like, look, I mean, nothing's going to happen in the first quarter this year anyways. I mean, I'll have plenty of time. Uh, well, that was a mistake. There was a lot of things that happened. And uh, so I had to write a book and deal with the you know, carnage in the markets. Yeah, it's certainly been a wild ride these past few months. So let's start the conversation with your book. Um, what is Geopolitical Alpha and how can investors generate it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a framework book. You know, it's not a book about the future. It's not a book about forecasting. I felt that I didn't really have much to say on that front. And quite frankly, I, I didn't really think that, you know, my views on the future were that important. What I tried to give investors is a framework for how to incorporate politics and geopolitics in a systematic way so that investors can uh, think about it as part of their portfolio construction process. Rather than thinking about politics as something that's exogenous and that you kind of have to talk to these old wise men in smoke-filled rooms and get their take on where policymakers are going. Uh, and fundamentally, it comes down to a very simple precept, which is that uh, we as investors should focus on things we can observe, on things we can measure. Uh, and that happens to actually be really important. The material constraints that force policymakers to do things that don't necessarily align with their preferences. And so I would say that that is really fundamentally what the book is about. It's, it's that simple. So before we go into more on the sort of constraints and preferences, I just want to ask you, you said your book is not about the future, um, but your subtitle is An Investment Framework for Predicting the Future. So can anyone really predict the future? 
Well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it's funny. It's, it's it's supposed to be like a punch in the face. Like, oh, wow, you can predict the future. You know, it, I mean, you can. You can. You can have a, um, you know, a reasonable, learned idea of where the probabilities lie about the future. And that's what I would say. I mean, uh, the framework is about getting to that point. Uh, but if you read the book, I think you'll get a pretty good sense of where I think things are going. Just reading the chapters and seeing me deploy this framework, you'll you'll figure out what, what I'm thinking. Uh, but the real point of the book is more to be a, a tool, a guide, so that everybody who reads it can get to the same point. So one of the key points in your book is that we're moving away from what is called the Washington Consensus and towards the Buenos Aires Consensus. So help uh, listeners understand this better. Start with explaining what exactly is the Washington Consensus and then what is the Buenos Aires Consensus? Well, you know, the Washington Consensus is a catch-all term. And uh, over the last 40 years, we as investors have enjoyed many, many tailwinds that we didn't even really, uh, we weren't really aware of them. Um, for example, think about the laissez-faire economic uh, system, uh, which has a lot of things associated with it. Uh, privatization of the public sector, deregulation, uh, rel uh, ever lower corporate tax rates, uh, free trade, independent central banking, and very prudent or at least counter-cyclical fiscal policy. Those terms, those, those policies uh, have been given this moniker of the Washington Consensus. Why Washington? Well, basically because the two institutions that most propagated these policies, the IMF and the, and, and the World Bank, are headquartered in, in Washington, D.C. And so that Washington Consensus has worked you know, wonderfully for the last 40 years, as far as investors are concerned. Um, because they were largely unaware of it, you know, so they didn't, you didn't have to analyze who wins the election in the U.S. that deeply because policy was on autopilot. Um, my view is that we're going into a different world and that world will see all of these policies reversed. Uh, and so I needed to give it a name and I thought, well, which country is the most anti-Washington consensus? It's Argentina. You know, I'm not really saying that we're all going to end up Argent as Argentina. I'm sure the gold bugs listening to this are extremely excited by this prospect. Um, that's not what I mean. It's just, a, it's just a way to, you know, identify that we're moving away from this kind of prudent, technocratic, and interestingly, undemocratic way to think about macroeconomics. And we're moving towards a much more populist, uh, less technocratic, and actually more democratic way to think about macroeconomics. And that's the irony here. The more you democratize, you know, technocratic macroeconomic policy setting, the more messier it's going to get. Well, that's a good segue to talk a bit more about constraints and preferences. I've heard you say that the biggest constraint in a democracy is the median voter. Um, I'd love for you to talk a bit more about what the median voter theory is. And I was also surprised to learn that the median voter has moved to the left. So perhaps you can just explain a bit more about that. So why, why is Washington consensus giving way to the Buenos Aires consensus? What is it that's leading this? Is it policymakers that have figured out that it's better to have more left-leaning, less technocratic, uh, less you know, prudent policies? No. They are merely responding to the median voter. And this is something that I think we as investors really have to figure out. Whether you're investing in an individual country and you're trying to figure out which way policy will go, or whether you're thinking about these mega themes like the Buenos Aires consensus, 
policymakers are not the price makers in the political marketplace. That's the fascinating simplicity of the median voter theory, which I hijacked from political science. So it's not like I invented this. The median voter theory basically argues that policymakers will try to approximate the policies they give us uh, based on where the median voter sits. Why? Because they want to win elections. That is that simple. Median voter, of course, is where the most voters kind of uh, congregate around this theme. And so that is the ultimate constraint to policymakers. You know, if Paul Ryan, the sort of uh, centrist, center-right, you know, um, uh, very sort of uh, pro-laissez-faire policymaker was to run for presidential elections in 2024, I would argue he would do extremely poorly because his mix of fiscal austerity, of prudence, of pro-business policies would simply not work in 2024 America. And that's because the median voter in the United States is a millennial today. It's uh, the birth year is 1982. They are highly indebted. Uh, they support, you know, socialism even outright in some of the polls, and uh, and they've been moving to the left on economic policy, not social, not cultural. And so the impediment for policymakers is to go back to the Washington policy consensus policies. I just don't see that happening. And so what I uh, forecast going forward is that given the constraints of the median voter, you will see U.S. policy actually ride the sort of frontier of unorthodoxy. In both monetary and fiscal terms, you will see the U.S. actually be the most unorthodox uh, out of all the major economies with pretty significant implications for the U.S. dollar uh, and, and global asset allocation. So I want to pick up on politics and elections and also forecasts in just a moment. But there was a great line in your book that I just wanted to read out here. And it's that you said you have to meditate on your biases and bathe yourself in indifference. That's easier said than done. How does one kind of put that into action? I mean, what I do is I literally meditate. You know, uh, that's that's literally what what I personally do. Um, but, you know, for different people, meditation might be something different. Um, the bottom line of that statement is that I find that generating geopolitical alpha uh, is quite easy because so many investors are actually quite ideological about their views. Uh, so when it comes to uh, analyzing a company, they're very dispassionate. They're able to do bottom-up analysis. When it comes down to using technical analysis or valuations, they're quantitative, objective things. But when it comes down to investing in a country that's, let's say, ruled by a socialist, you know, a lot of investors get very emotional about it. And there's, a, of course, a chapter in the book where I describe this meeting with a brilliant hedge fund manager who just wanted to throw me out of the office because I suggested in 2018 that one should belong the Mexican peso relative to the Brazilian real. And the argument there that he kind of gave me was you want to belong socialism and short capitalism because of the positions of the two policymakers. But those things were really just headlines in the news stories. Uh, in order to be an investor, you have to adopt the same discipline and dispassionate analysis that you do, that you apply to macroeconomic indicators or analyzing you know, individual stocks and apply it to politics. Because it's not an exogenous variable. It, it should be part of our toolbox as investors. This is part of your job as an investor part of your fiduciary responsibility is to have this nihilistic approach to politics. Well, speaking of headlines, certainly in the US, uh, the news has been obviously dominated by the US elections. 
I heard you say recently that you don't think the election really matters for the next decade or so. And also that you think the election was not really a sort of a Biden versus Trump uh, election so much as a pro-growth outcome versus an anti-growth outcome. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us, please? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, over the course of the next decade, I think the median voter uh, has already spoken. Um, you know, Americans are no longer worried about budget deficits. There are no more conversations about, uh, you know, austerity. It's going to be very difficult to go back to that era. So over the next decade, I think, um, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear to me how investors should uh, allocate assets in terms of global asset allocation. I think the dollar will be in a bear market. It's not going to lose reserve currency status. That's not the argument I'm making. Just, you know, there have been three dollar bear markets over the past 60 years. We're about to have another one uh, that will probably last a decade. Good for commodities, good for EM. So in those terms, I think that that's set. Now, on a more a six to 12 month period, um, there were really only two outcomes. Uh, there was either a pro-growth outcome where Donald Trump's re-election would have reaffirmed America's membership in the sort of populist camp, the Buenos Aires consensus, or a blue wave that would have also reaffirmed it uh, instantaneously in both cases. There was this other outcome though, the anti-growth outcome, and we got that one. You know, we got the outcome that uh, we're going to have some uh, a hiccup on the road to Buenos Aires, if you will. Uh, and that's going to come down to fiscal policy negotiations between um, President-elect Biden and the uh, Senate Republican majority. Uh, the Senate Republicans are likely to put some roadblocks on this uh, front. And uh, I think that the market is going to have some indigestion over the next three months uh, fueled by this fiscal rancor. Uh, eventually, I think Republicans in the Senate will succumb to the median voter, but they will put up a fight. And you can see that right now. I mean, it's November 18th. Look at where the 10-year yield is. It hasn't really risen in anticipation of massive fiscal stimulus. It's actually quite weak relative to what's going on with the equity market. So bonds remain well bid. And gold prices are also telling you that the market is a little bit hesitant about growth prospects next year. So while we're on the US election, I'd love to spend just one quick minute or two on sort of this question of, of forecasts versus pundits. And I just want to read you a couple of headlines I saw in the news in the last week. So one was, good grief, the pollsters got it wrong. Another one, a black eye, why political polling missed the mark again. And then another one, accurate information, well, I guess this is more of a statement, accurate information is critical to political discourse and everyone loses when so many pollsters are consistently wrong. So, you know, are investors going to learn the lesson from 2016 and be more discerning about who to rely on for their geopolitical forecasts? Polls are an input into the kind of stew of forecasting. Uh, there should be other things in that stew. Um, and I think fundamentals are part of that, you know, uh, economic performance, approval rating, incumbency. There's ways to construct a model uh, that kind of takes into account more than polls. But I will say one thing. President-elect Biden's lead in the poll of polls was large enough to survive a massive polling error. And so I don't actually disagree with some of the sort of professional forecasters who assigned very low probability to Donald Trump. I mean, ultimately, Joe Biden had such a large lead that he could survive the kind of polling miss that happened. And so that's something we should also keep in mind.
So let's pivot now to sort of US-China relations. Will things be different under a Biden administration? I think yes, for sure. I mean, you know, foreign policy won't be conducted by tweets. Uh, tariffs are not going to be used as a blunt instrument. Uh, but obviously, there is bipartisan consensus. I mean, you've heard this before from other people that you, I'm sure you've talked to. Um, so to me, there is a risk of a democratic presidency. If you look at recent American history, democratic presidents have a much more difficult two-level game. What's a two-level game? You have this sort of an international uh, game theory between you know, uh, US and China, but there's also a domestic game. And presidents have to have the room to maneuver to make concessions on the international front. Republican presidents tend to actually have more room to maneuver. I mean, just think about this, this fact. I mean, Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un. Can you imagine what would have happened if Barack Obama had met with him and called him his friend? You know, the United States would have lit itself in flames. So uh, Republican presidents quite often have more of a re uh, maneuvering room on the international arena because no one will accuse them of being doves or weak. And so I think that President-elect Biden will face constraints domestically, especially because the 2024 election is shaping up to be the China election where a number of China hawks in the current administrations, such as the state secretary, uh, Mike Pompeo, is are likely to challenge Biden. And if that's the case, my question is how much can really change fundamentally in the relationship? Um, and I think the Chinese policymakers are aware of that, and I think they're, you know, uh, they're being realistic. And you can see that in just how committed China is in trying to maintain other alliances. Uh, the RCEP uh, free trade, that was negotiated and signed is a good example of this, where China itself is trying to diversify away from the U.S. in anticipation that not much will change uh, with Biden administration. So one thing we often hear in terms of U.S.-China relations is this Cold War narrative. But you think it's uh, a misused analogy and that it's lazy analysis. Very, Why? very lazy. And I mean, I'll, I'll. I'll be honest, and I'll say I've used it myself. You know, in 2011, uh, most of the research I was writing in 2011, 2012 was actually to dismiss Middle East as a source of investment-relevant risk, and to try to, you know, wake up the investment community to the coming U.S.-China confrontation. So I myself have titled pieces of research, you know, Cold War 2.0 and so on. Uh, but now that we got this, now that this forecast has basically been articulated, it's time to think about what's going to happen in the following decade. And I think it's lazy to basically just uh, extrapolate linearly what happened over the last decade. Uh, Cold War is a bad analogy because we have to understand the Cold War was, uh, was began in completely different circumstances. 1945, 1946, the world was really destroyed. There were only two powers, Soviet Union and the US. Japan had two nuclear bombs dropped on it. China was embroiled in a civil war that would last another three years. You had uh, many large economies. There were still colonies of, of European countries. And Europe was decimated and uh, strewn with refugees. So the starting conditions in 1945 were very favorable to this bifurcation, this very clean, this very neat divergence of two camps. We don't have that world today. I mean, sure, you know, Japan and Europe are... The deflationary economies with not a lot of things going on, but they're not, you know, picking up pieces of a nuclear explosion in, in their country. This is a completely different situation. So we have a much more multipolar world. Countries have the ability 
to pursue their foreign and trade policies independent of one another. So why is that important? It's important because the U.S. and China, in relative terms, are not as powerful as Soviet Union and the U.S. were. And so it's going to be much more difficult for them to um, enforce compliance of their allies to this bifurcation. And so I think you're going to start seeing this, and you already see it. I mean, like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan are part of RCEP, this China-ASEAN treaty on trade. Um, you wouldn't have seen that at the height of the Cold War. It did happen a little bit later with uh, Germans pr pursuing Ostpolitik and so on. I mean, but it was at a much, much, much later stage of that uh, competition and in a much less relevant way. So I think that it's going to be very difficult to have complete bifurcation. And so I think investors should not bet on that. I think there's still going to be investment opportunities in China. And I think there's still going to be investment opportunities in certain markets that depend on continuation of global trade. So we're both sitting in the US, although we are on different coasts. I'm on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast. Let's uh, cross the pond briefly for those listeners who may not be based in the US. We've been hearing about Brexit for years, but this is a crucial time for the UK's departure from the EU. Uh, what kind of changes do you expect to UK-EU relations uh, in the sort of coming years, especially in 2021? Well, I mean, I, I guess in the near term, the you know, I, I would have to provide you with an answer to what's going to happen, you know, on, on January 1st. And I think there will be some sort of a deal. It will be one of these deals where a lot of the details are punted to later. I think that the current um, look, I mean, you know, the UK chose Brexit through democratic means, and that is where we are. Um, but I would say that it is objectively not an optimal strategy for the United Kingdom. And there's a very simple reason for that. And supporters of Brexit are not going to like it, by the way. <laughs> the reason that many people voted against uh, a close relationship to the EU is, is the EU labor policy. But ironically, EU migrants into the EU are the largest share of, UE, of UK, sorry, of UK's potential GDP growth rate. So when you think about the potential GDP growth rate, it's only two things, productivity growth and labor force growth. The United Kingdom has no productivity growth, as you know, many other developed nations don't have. And its labor force growth was, over the last 10 years, about 80% about EU migrants. So basically what the UK has done is it has taken out about 40 to 60%, depending how you calculate it, of its potential GDP growth rate. It means that if the potential GDP growth rate of the United Kingdom was 2%, it's now going to be 1.2%. And that's going to mean that the UK over the next decade will be uh, more likely to, to run a higher inflationary uh, economy. And it means that obviously growth outcomes are going to be pretty um, uh, much more different. And then, of course, there's a question of financial system, the fisheries, and all the other things, I mean, that, you know, have been covered well. But I'm actually surprised how poorly this very simple point has been covered. The UK's economy has outperformed that of the continent, in part because of the very reason why people were angry about the EU. The other issue I would say is that it's a fascinating situation where even once we get a deal, the UK now has one of the least sophisticated relationships with the EU. I mean, even less so than Turkey or Norway, which is very fascinating. These are non-EU member states. Uh, and that's, I think, invariably going to be a problem for the UK. Um, the time for the UK to leave the EU, if there was ever a time, was really the 90s, the height of globalization. 
Now that we're in something else, now that we're in this multipolar world, economies of scale really, really matter. Access to a protected uh, regional market are critical. The ability to kind of negotiate with major powers FTA deals that will be universally uh, you know, beneficial, that doesn't really exist anymore. And so the UK chose the absolute worst time uh, to make the decision it did. But ultimately, again, it's a democratic decision. It was done. Uh, the UK is now going to have to live with that over the next decade. Okay, so we've talked about Brexit and the US-China trade war. What is not being talked about? Well, I don't think the Middle East is really talked about. It's funny because I mentioned earlier, you know, 2011, 2012, I was uh, I was arguing people should pay more attention to East Asia. But now I think um, we've kind of moved to that already sufficiently. And if you uh, look at some indicators that I tracked, um, there's about two-decade low interest in Middle East uh, in the financial community. Uh, there's very little attention being paid. This is a problem. The Middle East is in a disequilibrium. Um, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and subsequent pullout has created this uh, vacuum uh, in a very critical piece of geography that's a buffer between Iran and Saudi Arabia, perennial rivals. And uh, I think that this election is not really going to resolve that. No matter what happens with the election, there was always going to be an aggrieved side. And the U.S., as a guarantor of some sort of a balance of power in the Middle East, is just becoming less and less concerned about it. You know, U.S. imports of oil, of course, from the region have collapsed, whereas China is becoming ever more, um, um, you know, linked to the trade with uh, for energy from the region. And so the U.S. has ever less interest in stability of the Middle East. And I don't mean that in some sort of a draconian, draconian uh, Machiavellian way. It's just that it's not as relevant for the U.S. over the long term uh, that there is a perfect equilibrium in the region. So I do think that over the next several years, there could be more uh, conflict. And I think if you look at the current energy prices, and if you, especially if you look at, for example, energy producers in the U.S., they're plumbing decade lows. I mean, they're beaten down by the ESG sustainability narrative, uh, by the low oil prices. Uh, but when you think to yourself as an investor, are we going to stop using oil over the next 10 years? Not really. We're still going to have to use it. Where are we going to extract that oil from? And where is it geopolitically safe? I think some of these you know, non-Middle East producers could catch a bid over the next decade. What about Russia? Well, I mean, Russia as well, in, in some ways. I think uh, Russia is a very intriguing uh, investment opportunity in one reason, for one reason is that it's been running a very orthodox, conservative Washington consensus, if you will, fiscal and monetary policy. In fact, if I look at uh, structural reform, especially currency reform and fiscal reform, Russia probably gets the A-plus over the last five years. So from that perspective, Russia's actually done really well uh, with its books, you know, with its uh, balance sheets. Um, it's an economy that's very well run. And again, given my view on energy prices, I mean, it would be an interesting um, investment opportunity, at least in the short term. In the long term, it'll be interesting to see what happens with governance. And of course, we heard that, you know, Vladimir Putin might be contemplating retirement. You know, what will that mean for corporate governance and how, you know, sort of ease of doing business improves or doesn't in Russia? Those are long term things that, you know, I don't have any clarity on right now. Uh, but maybe there might be an interesting entry point for the long term uh, if there is substantive structural reform on that front as well. 
So a few moments ago, you mentioned sustainability and actually reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about. Um, I heard you say recently that sustainability is the next major trend for the next decade. And I think you were specifically talking about in the private markets versus the public markets. Could you just share your perspective on that? Well, I mean, in public markets, um, you know, there's some evidence that ESG indices outperform and that there's some alpha to be picked up there. The problem is that I just see very little creativity um, in, in public markets. And for the most part, there seems to be a lot of verbiage and a lot of uh, very colorful PDFs being printed, but there's very little impact on the planet. So what do I mean by that? I, I mean that the future technologies that will resolve problems in agriculture, in food production, in water access, in poverty, in education, and yes, climate change, those future technologies are not in public markets. They're in the private space. And so I think institutional investors should start moving in that direction. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. I think there's uh, going to be a lot of innovation. Some of it is going to be uh, you know, tech and software that's going to allow us to become more efficient in terms of everything. But some of it, and I think most of it, will actually be in the sort of real world space, materials, energy, healthcare, agriculture. Uh, these sectors that have languished over the past decade as big tech has kind of you know, taken over our equity indices. Uh, so I'm very excited about that kind of a, a other space. You know, Peter Thiel, he, he made this point a couple of years ago, you know, the world is dominated right now by bits but atoms will have their day. I think we're about to see a decade where he will be proven right. So we started our conversation with, I guess, your journey over the past few months to becoming an author. And I thought we could sort of book in that uh, with uh, your personal journey. You say you've come to finance along a windy road and you certainly have a very fascinating background. Uh, just give the audience sort of a, sort of a tip but taste of, of uh, how you ended up in the world of geopolitics. Well, I mean, I think I was uh, kind of born into it. I don't think I had a choice. Uh, my first, uh, you know, conversation that I remember as as a child, like literally the first conversation I remember as a human being <laughs> was with my mom. And uh, she was giving me a bath and explaining to me why Iranian scuds were flying over our head in Baghdad. Now, I'm not from Iraq, but I lived there uh, for a brief period of time uh, in the 80s. Uh, my, my dad was doing business in Baghdad, and then we, you know, returned to the uh, comfort and safety and security of our own country, which was uh, late 1980s Yugoslavia, which, of course, then didn't last for too long. And then as a, as a very young kid, I had to learn these terms like hyperinflation, you know, uh, you know, collapse of society. And so it's just been from one region to another. Uh, it, it's been a very interesting kind of upbringing that... Uh, obviously gave me a lot of interest in, in, in geopolitics. And then thankfully, uh, when, while I was working in the geopolitical risk industry, just sort of uh, vanilla political risk analysis, um, I was in charge of the European desk at the beginning of the Euro area crisis. And really the Euro area crisis was the def defining moment in my career because it was very clear that finance, macroeconomics, and politics were all in equal footing. Uh, and that made me very passionate about kind of teaching investors uh, a way to think about politics as something that isn't voodoo. It's not, you know, looking at chicken entrails. There's a way to be as systematic about thinking about politics and geopolitics as one is about, you know, forecasting the markets, 
at the end of the day, both are very difficult to forecast. And it, there's no mathematical certainty in either realm. And I think over-quantification has actually pulled a wool over many people's eyes by making them become complacent and think that there is a level of certainty in these forecasts on the macroeconomic side, on the market side. Um, there isn't. The world is much more messier and qualitative, sorry, and I think both politics and finance are in the same boat. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry, um, I just have to say, you have some of the, the most colorful language I have ever heard and some of the best analogies. I mean, chicken entrails, <laughs> that, that'll stick with me for a little while. Um, so in our, our closing minutes, I always ask guests, I guess, the same two questions. Um, and the first one is uh, something that I read on a, a NASA education model where they asked students to think about going on a long duration space flight uh, where you can take one object with you and what that object would be and why. So I pose it to the guests. I'm like, you're about to get on a, you know, a long flight to who knows where, um, and you can take one thing with you. What would it be? Um, I think I would take NBA League Pass, to be quite honest, as long as I have the internet, you know, because I, I do like to uh, watch some basketball games. So I think I will take that. It's not very okay, profound. Great. It's not very profound. <laughs> but you know what? It helps with that meditation part of it. Yep, that's that's true. And the final question is what we call the ray of sunshine question. And it's something I got from uh, Trevor Noah of The Daily Show way back in the, the start of the pandemic. He would have this little segment at the end of every show, sort of the ray of sunshine. And so the question really is, what, what do you hope will be one positive long-term change in society as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's probably actually quite a lot of them. Um, but I think that one is, I think that um, life-work balance will actually improve. Uh, one of the reasons is that it's going to be much easier to stay connected to people without uh, undertaking um, very costly, expensive, and timely travel. You know, and this comes from somebody who's done a lot of that. And I think that uh, it will be much more easier to have a uh, life-work balance. Now, of course, you will be able to take work home. That's going to affect that balance. Uh, but I think that's that over the long term, I think elimination of some of the travel that we've all been doing will be will be a positive. Well, Mark, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. I've tremendously enjoyed the conversation. It's been great to have you on the show. Same here. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.